prayer time this week, I really wrestled with um, what does it mean to actually, in time and space, real time, commune with Jesus? You know, if there was a biography about your spouse, because they were all famous, and you like, you could read this biography, right? And it breaks down because scripture is the word of God and stuff. But it, you could read the biography about your spouse and not really spend time with your spouse. <laughs> like, not, not look at them in the eye and, and not uh, come together with your spouse. And that challenged me about Jesus this week. And so I believe that what God has to say to us from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning is deeply connected with that question, um, what right do I have to believe that Jesus is looking at me in love? And what hope do I have to be able to come to God and not run away from God and just sit with an awareness of his presence, to just sit in his love without getting up and running away and feeling like I'm wasting my time. And it has everything to do with Jesus being the bread that you have to crush to eat and get life from. It's all about the gospel faith. How do we come to the table? This morning we get to have the Lord's Supper. We've already confessed our sins, so, you know, we've done that, right? But we come reminding us that the blood of, of Christ, right, is our hope to come to the table. And the very image of what we're going to do at the table is a picture of gospel faith. And so we're going to see how through gospel faith, uh, we have hope. Remember our summer series of hope? We have hope of the glory of God. We have confidence that we will be glorified with Christ when Christ returns. We will be vindicated. We will get to see God in his glory. And we will be like God, the Bible tells us, which is amazing. And we will commune with him and enjoy him in all his glory for all eternity and with one another, glorified together. We have confident hope in that. And so I'm going to read the passage, but I want to give you our map before we even read the passage. And we're going to see that through gospel faith in Jesus Christ, obedient Suffering, crucified, dead, risen in our place. Um, through that gospel faith, we can have hope for three things. Not surprisingly, right? We can have hope with, uh, we can commune with God in hope. We can endure and experience sufferings with hope. And we can face our future with hope because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and his finished work at the cross for us. Amen? Amen. So let's read God's word together. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. <clears throat> 
Father, we come to you to commune with you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we give ourselves to you. We worship you. We are yours. We're here. Lord, we come with the only hope that we have, but that it is an absolutely solid hope, the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his finished work and his shed blood on our behalf. Father, we plead with you that you would, by your Holy Spirit, strengthen our faith this morning. Renew our faith in the gospel, our simple faith in the gospel. And would you, by your Spirit, strengthen us to be able to handle more of the reality that is good news. Would you open our minds and drive away the lies about what is really our ultimate reality, what is ultimately true, regardless of whatever temporary situations we're going through. God, would you please change the way we see ourselves and the way we see our lives to fit more and more with how amazing your love is for us and just how wonderful it is to be your children bought with the blood of your only begotten son, Jesus. We pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit, that we might be filled more with your love and be more transformed by that love through faith in Jesus. And I also just pray ahead that as we have the Lord's Supper this morning, oh Lord Jesus, would you please commune with us? And would you help us to taste and see that you are good as we remember your cross and your resurrection and look forward to your return? We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 So this letter to the Romans is Paul's preaching of the gospel. It's his defense of the gospel from the Old Testament. And it's his application of the gospel to our lives. Because these things are true, here's how your life is meant to change and is going to change by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in you. Paul is reminding believers of their ultimate big picture, picture situation. You know, we're going to talk about suffering. And Paul uh, hadn't been to Rome yet, but he was all excited to go to Rome. And when he got to Rome, guess what? He got imprisoned, right? So he spent the rest of his days, or the, the, the book of Acts ends with Paul in house arrest in Rome, um, stuck at home. And so when we think about the sufferings that we endure for the sake of Christ, and also just our general sufferings, we can, we can imply things about our own identity and how God feels about us and where we are with God. We can, we can misuse our sufferings to then import lies about our relationship with God. And Paul is combating that by, his mighty, by God's mighty word in Romans. He's telling us that through gospel faith in Jesus Christ, we can commune with God in hope, with confidence, right? Not hiding, as Sean reminded us. We can experience, endure, and interpret our sufferings with hope, not thinking that they mean God doesn't love us, right? And we can face our future with hope, knowing that our glorious future is unavoidable because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so let's look at these things together in this letter. We enjoy a loving relationship with God because we have hope through gospel faith. We are learning to eat the bread of life. All right, we're learning to eat the bread of life. Look at how Paul preaches the gospel to these Roman Christians. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, 
since we have been justified by faith. So we're going to camp out on this a little bit. We're going to look at that and click on these words and let new screens pop up about what that means for us. All right. The first, therefore, what's he talking about? Well, in Romans chapter, uh, well, the whole first part of the book of Romans is Paul uh, reminding us of our need for the gospel, um, showing us the power of the gospel for salvation, and explaining just how good the good news is. And then he begins defending the gospel through Old Testament examples. And the heart of what he's telling us about the good news, about how we are saved, is that is that there is a righteousness, there's a permanent perfect record that we desperately need or we're going to hell. (laughs) And there's this permanent perfect record that God offers us as a free gift that we can't earn. You're either represented by Adam and you're not, it's not good, or you're represented by Jesus and you're saved. Those are the two options. And so he's he's reminding, uh, he's reminding them that This is not a new idea. There are many Jewish Christians that are going to read this letter or Jewish people who aren't Christians yet who might hear about these things. And Paul is saying, I'm not preaching something new to you. It's been in God's word the whole time, all the way back to Genesis. And he uses Abraham's life as an example when it says that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted or imputed or credited to him as righteousness. God justified Abraham through faith in his promise, not by what he did. And Paul proves this and says, you know, there was nothing Abraham did religiously when his justification happened. It was an event where God declared him righteous, counted him righteous. He wasn't circumcised and getting all Jewishy, right, until years later, right? So there's nothing that he did to be justified. He simply trusted in God's promise and received a permanent, perfect record from God legitimately credited to him because of what Jesus was going to do for him. And then he goes to the life of David, and he quotes one of the Psalms, and he, and he talks about where David says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never, it's a double negative in the original languages, will never count his sin. Do you really believe that? I mean, we believe it, but we don't, right? As we're singing these songs, God will never, ever, ever count your sin to you if you're trusting in Christ, because he's already counted it to his son at the cross. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself, right? But that's what he's been been talking about. He's been proving the gospel. Like, Abraham was saved by faith alone. David was saved by faith alone. But then he brings it to these Roman Christians' lives and also to our life directly, right? What does he say? Verse 1. Therefore, since we too, right, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God. And so I want us to get a little deeper to talk about what justification is. And um, our church, our church leadership um, embraces uh, non-inspired, it's not not the Bible, it's different from the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God, only the Bible is the Word of God. But we have these, these doctrinal statements that we subscribe to that we believe are faithful expressions of what God's Word teaches. And one of those is the Shorter Catechism. It's a series of questions and answers that, that we learn to help us have succinct definitions of things and understandings and putting together the Bible's content. And so in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asks, what is justification? 
And some of you, uh, Miss Oaks could totally chant this out loud. She, she always says them, right? And, and if you are, have been here long enough and studied with her, you know it too. I memorized it in seminary. But it's justification is an act. It's not a work. It's not something that takes place over a long period of time. It's a punctiliar, pointed, once for all, in, a, in, the, flink, in the flash of an eye. It's, it's an act of God's free grace wherein he... He pardons all of our sins, past, present, and future, pardons all of our sins, and accepts us as perfectly righteous. I'm not using their words. I'm like riffing on it. He, he accepts us as perfectly righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited to us, counted to us, covering us. God sees us that way legitimately, received by faith alone. That's the scandal of the gospel, that no matter what you've done, no matter how you are right now as a believer, right, if you're truly trusting in Christ, you are perfectly righteous in God's sight forever, and you can't mess that up. You can't unjustify yourself. Like, Jesus is like, I'm your Savior. I saved you. Too bad. You can't get out of it, right? We've been justified, and we need to remember that. Because the devil wants you to forget that so bad, right? The devil wants you to try to earn your place with God. He wants you to trust in how well you're doing, how you've resisted that particular besetting sin this week or not. He wants you to place your standing with God in you and not through Jesus. And Paul is reminding them, not only was Abraham saved this way, not only was David saved this way, but we have been saved by faith alone, we couldn't do anything. In Romans 4, he says, now to him who works, you know, his paycheck is counted not as grace. It's not like, oh, thank you for paying me, even though they're supposed to pay. No, it's like, no, thanks, it's a debt. You're like, you owe me my paycheck, right? But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, the bad kids, you know, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. They receive, we receive the righteousness of Christ covering us. Is that not good news? I need to be reminded of that all the time. Jesus wants to be reminded of that all the time. When he says, I'm the bread of life. How do you get life? By eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What does that mean? That is a picture of gospel faith. The Lord's Supper is a picture of gospel faith. Jesus isn't talking about eating the Lord's Supper in that John 6 passage. He's actually talking about an image of gospel faith. You can see that from the rest of the passage. But our faith is never to be divorced from the cross of Jesus Christ because it is the consummate revelation of God's love for us. The cross is your communion with Christ. The Christ being crucified and risen for you is the heart of his love and that's why he pictures not only uh, believing on him for salvation as eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but our regular taking visible signs and seals of his love for us that remind us that he gave his body to be broken for us and he gave his blood to be shed for us. Like he does not want you to not think about his flesh and blood being given to you uh, when you're communing with him. And that's how God reminded me and answered that question that I was wrestling with. How do we commune with Jesus real time? It's through eating his flesh and drinking his blood by faith, meaning continuing to believe on him and his, and his bloody screaming out on purpose in our place, death, 
and suffering the wrath of God for us and dying and rising again. His love is never seen more clearly than that. That's how he fills us with his love. And that's why he wants you to not shut up about Jesus was crucified for me. Paul says, I've determined to know nothing among you. Like, sermon after sermon, like, Paul, shut up. No, I'm not going to shut up. I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we hear every week from the pulpit from all of, of the pastors is Christ crucified. Because in Christ crucified on purpose and the Father giving his son for you on purpose because he loves you is what fills you with his love. It, it's what reveals most brightly the love of God for us. And so Paul is reminding them, therefore, he's going to give us hope. He's going to stir up our hope. He's going to remind us, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you have, as a distinct act in the past, been, been justified. So Christ was crucified for you, but when you were justified, like when you received Christ by faith, there was a split-second moment where you received your justification by faith in Jesus. God declared you righteous, and it, it doesn't happen again. It doesn't need to happen again. And um, I may be like getting above my pay grade or whatever when I make Greek uh, grammar comments, but uh, so there's different, the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the New Testament and the Old Testament to use different tenses and different words uh, as they wrote things down. And, the, and you know, if you're like, oh, grammar, awesome. It's important, okay? Um, and things are used differently and you don't want to like based too much of a point on one Greek grammar thing, and I get that, blah, blah, blah. But this, this having been justified, that justified, the tense that that is using is called an aorist tense. There can be, I was wrong. I think I said it was perfect last week or the week before. It's not. It's aorist tense. And my Greek professor was like, don't say it means this. Everyone says, oh, it's aorist. So I'm very sensitive. But my point in all that is it's, there's something about it generally that's like, it's usually in the past, but it's like punctiliar was the fancy word. It's like a period. I want you to imagine just a period that you're reading a page and there's a period there. All right? That's your justification. It's isolated from you. It, it's something that happened to you based on something that happened in the past 2,000 years ago. And, and when we realize that our justification is distant from us in the sense that the, the event itself was a one-time act, and it's just like a little period, like, you're justified. Okay, moving on. We don't move on in terms of, we don't think about it anymore, but we move on in terms of like, okay, is there something else I need to do now, you know, to be right with God? I want you to see how Paul preaches to us the freedom that our justification gives to us, because there was this little, boop, little point, this little period that God did, this little act, well, a huge act, right? But act based on what Jesus did outside your head before you were born, 2,000 years, you're like, it's completely apart from you. Does you see how beautiful that is? And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants us to realize that we really don't know what that means. Like, we get it, but we don't. And so you should dare to, to imagine that the Christian life is even better than you think it is and feel it is, because this means more, something more beautiful than we kind of think it does in our daily lives. And so he says, therefore, being justified by faith, what? We have peace with God. So let that sink in, right? You have peace. But I still sin. Duh. Lord's Prayer, you know? I was convicted as we were reading the Lord's Prayer. I should pray something like the Lord's Prayer every day. Like, how, how often do I need protection from temptation to sin? 
oh, I don't know, just on Tuesdays, right? No, like, he assumes you're sinning all the time. Like, forgive me my debt. Says, forgive us our debt, says, we forgive our debtors. Well, that prayer is irrelevant now because I did great this week. Nope, it's always relevant, right? He says, you, we have peace with God, relational peace. Jesus has purchased peace with God. As we were reading our chronological, go through the Bible in a year, chronological plan thing um, in Ezekiel, and there is this, I'm not going to get into details, it's, it's pretty rough, but there's this passage where God talks about the harlotry and adultery of Jerusalem. And he goes into just, he goes on and on in anger about how faithless she's been to him as her bridegroom. And he talks about like Sodom and Gomorrah and your sister Samaria and then all the nations around. And he's like, not only have you not obeyed me, you have outdone the people that I kicked out for you in your wickedness. Like if you think they're bad and they're famous, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, um, their pride, their refusal to help the poor, and their abominable things. Like, y'all are way worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, y'all are helping Sodom and Gomorrah out. You're making her look better by how bad you've sinned. And he goes on and on, and he gets kind of detailed, and, you know, maybe more in Sunday school you talk about that with adults. And, but what does he do? He says, kind of in his anger, <laughs> he promises the new covenant. He, he promises, he reminds them of his covenant of grace. And he says, you know, but I'm going to atone for your sins. And you're going to be ashamed of what you did. You're like, wait, what? Like, I can't believe, I'm going to judge this. But I'm going to atone for your sins. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. And, to, and you'll be ashamed then, you know. <laughs> you know, he, he, his heart of grace is behind that too. But like in the midst of rebuking her, for being worse than everyone else on the face of the earth, right? God's people in Jerusalem. He's like, but I'm going to justify you. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make an everlasting covenant with you. You know, I'm offering you salvation through faith in me. And it's going to be by grace. And so that you will actually lament over your idolatry. You'll repent, you'll forsake them, and you'll come to me. You'll come to me and commune with me, right, regularly. Like, we won't sleep in separate bedrooms, right? You will be with me, and I will be with you. We can commune with God in hope because we have peace with God because we've been justified. We've been ushered into this permanent place of grace. Permanent place of grace. Look at what he says. Through him we have also, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith. He can't stop talking about faith, right? Remember, it's not by your being good and your record. It's by faith in Jesus' record for you, right? By faith into this grace in which we stand. Remember how we talked about being rooted and grounded in God's love? What is, where are you standing, right? What's the ground that you're walking on? Where are you standing? You, you're never not standing in grace. You know, it's not like, the, the earth is flat, and there's the edge of the world, and if you just keep sailing and sailing, you'll go, whoosh. You know, the place of grace is a sphere. And no matter how far you walk, you're just standing on grace. You can't get off of grace, right? We are always standing in grace. God's grace, His unrelenting love for you, and His, his uh, unmerited favor to you, and His just being for you stubbornly, no matter what you do, that is something, that's your ultimate reality, 
Think about your circumstances. Like, why is God letting this happen to me? Why is God letting this happen to someone I love? Um, I don't know, but I know it doesn't mean he stopped loving me. And I know it doesn't mean he stopped loving them, right? Grace is our ultimate reality. Underneath all of our temporary situations that may be highs or lows, right? Mountain high and valley low, we sang about that. We are always standing in grace because of God's love for us and what Jesus did for us. And because he, when we believed in him, he justified us. He united us to Christ and he counted us perfectly righteous forever. And so we experience the Holy Spirit filling us with God's love for us. Now, it's not the same way all the time, right? I've shared my story over and over about in Uganda. Like, I felt God's love in a way that made me cry the whole worship service, and I'm not crying right now. So it doesn't happen the same way all the time, right? But there's something supernatural that happens in the life of a believer that, that is sensible, that does something to us, right? He, um, verse 5, skipping down. He says, hope does not put us to shame. We'll get into this more in a few minutes, but, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? We're not going to be embarrassed for hoping in God for our salvation. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christians can boast in Christ. They can boast of their assurance because we have already been saved. And, and we, we um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, oh yeah, because we've experienced God's love for us now, right? You, you would be lying if you said, I've, I've never known that God loves me, if you're a Christian, right? There's at least been some time where the Spirit has actually helped me trust and believe and experience God's love for me by faith. As, as little as it is, we see through a glass darkly, right? That's a little foretaste. It's a little tease of what's coming to come when Jesus comes back and we know God fully in his love. He says, but we, the, we've been supernaturally, we experience God's love for us now by the Holy Spirit. The images of it being like welling up like a well, a spring, a well of water that just overflows inside of us. That the Holy Spirit, has, he has come into us and he is. He is the, the living water, and that living water communicates God's love. He's the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And his love is filling us. And so by faith in Jesus Christ, we can commune with God and hope. And God calls us, quit looking at yourselves for your hope. Look at Jesus, right? Remember me, commune with me in hope. And so secondly, we can experience and endure present sufferings and hope. I've already talked about that some. Look at what he says. Not only do we experience them, we can actually boast in them. Right? What does he say in verse 2? The second part. And we rejoice, and that word means boast. Like, you're not just like, hey, this is cool. You know, you're like, yeah! It's like when your team wins. Woo! We slayed them, man! You know, this, that's that feel. Like, you can boast in our sufferings. Isn't that amazing? He's not being cruel. Well, look at what he, what he means by that. He says, and we rejoice, uh, he says more than that, we, verse 3, sorry, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So we already have hope, but our hope gets even stronger through the sufferings that we endure, primarily for the sake of being persecuted for Christ. That's the primary 
emphasis, but in a secondary general way, our other kinds of sufferings that aren't directly because we are Christians can also produce that in us because they always test our faith, right? How can God be good? Do I really believe God's good when he let this happen to my family? Do I really believe God's good that he let this happen to me? Is he really good? Does he really love me? Did Jesus really die for me? Your faith is tested by suffering. And Paul says that because of the peace we have with God that's permanent, we can never not rightly interpret our sufferings to mean that we don't have peace with God. Does that make sense? We are tempted to believe that we have no peace with God because if we had peace with God, we wouldn't be going through this. But now, because of Jesus, whatever we're going through, he's not saying you enjoy your sufferings. You're like, yay, I'm suffering. But boast in the sense of like triumphant confidence over it in the midst of going through it, looking ahead and looking down. Oh, I'm still standing in grace. Even when the floods of suffering are coming into my life, I'm standing in grace still. God's love is still true for me. He is still good. And I can boast in the midst of this. I can boast knowing that this is not meaningless accident, but it is purposeful. God grieves over it, but it's part of his good plan to do good things for us for his glory. We can, have, we can endure and experience our sufferings rightly interpreting them. And Paul gives this process briefly. He says that our sufferings, what do they do? First thing they produce is endurance or patience or long-suffering. It's like, okay, so suffering makes you able to endure more suffering. Does that sound good? Like, uh, thanks, I think. (laughs) But it is. It's like lifting weights, you know? You want to be able to lift more, so it hurts to lift this much weight. After a while, it doesn't hurt so much. So this was, oh, I'll, I'll lift some more weight, right? Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Our ability to endure suffering makes us look more like Jesus because Jesus revealed God's love primarily and most powerfully through his own suffering on our behalf, voluntarily. And last, we get to face our future with hope. Well, the patience that he produces, right, produces um, character, which is proven faith. It's proven faith. your proven character, the, 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 the genuineness of your faith is proven through the endurance that you have. Like, you're still willing to suffer for Jesus. I guess their faith is genuine, right? And then that strengthens your hope. And that hope allows you to boast. Um, you can boast in that hope, that assurance that you have looking ahead to the future. Look back at verse 2. It says, through him we have also obtained access, by, oh, sorry, verse, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice, which is also the same word that means boast, in hope of the glory of God. So we can face our future with confidence in our future glorification, and that God, all the stuff I mentioned before, that, that not only we get to see God in his glory, we will get to be, we will be like God. We will be conformed fully to the image of God like we were meant to as human beings who are in the image of God. And we will experience his delight in, in its fullness. 
We will experience his public vindication of us. All the people that were telling these Christians when, who believe that it is finished, when Jesus said it is finished, and they said, no, it isn't, no, it isn't. You still have to do these sacrifices. What are you talking about? You guys are crazy. That's what Paul used to think when he was persecuting Christians as a Jewish person. Y'all are nuts. Of course it's not finished. You keep doing the sacrifices. Come on. It's not finished. And so he persecuted people for saying that it was finished, and then he became one of those people and endured persecution for the it is finished nature of Christianity, that you can't do anything, but Jesus did everything. And so what is it that he's boasting in? What is it that we boast in? It's interesting because when I looked it up and studied it more, you think it's that you're, you're rejoicing that you're going to see God's glory. I think it's a little more subtle than that here. He says, you're, you're, you're literally boasting on, the preposition is epi, on. You boast on the hope of the glory of God. So the glory of God is secondary. You're actually boasting in your hope. And so think about this. If you talk to someone from a different religious tradition and you say, you know what, I know for sure that if I die today, I'm going to heaven. And that when Jesus comes back, I mean, I'm gonna, he's going to like make me more like him and all this. And they're like, have you ever heard someone say, well, that's arrogant. Like, how can you possibly say, like, what if, what if you sin again? What if you like are doing real bad stuff and then you die? Like, what if you cuss in traffic and die as you're cussing in traffic? Like, what? You know, that's my jokey example, you know. What if you didn't have time to confess your sins? That's a false religion. That's not what the Bible teaches. When people say Christianity is just like every other religion of the world, it's because they're using a false version of Christianity, of, you know, because you can have assurance. And it glorifies Christ when you, when you are confident in your assurance and when you're sharing the gospel with someone or someone's like, what, what's your hope? Peter says, be ready to explain the hope you have. Well, my hope is not based on how well I've done. <laughs> I'd be, trust me, I'd be up in flames already if that was it. My hope is in Jesus, and therefore, I've got this assurance. See, I tell people, I know that when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. I know that when Jesus, and I'm not lying. Like, put me on a polygraph test. Like, give me a polygraph, all right? Do you know that you are saved and forgiven and that you are going to experience the glory of God in all its fullness. Do you know that for sure? Like, whatever the things, I don't know if the flat's good. Richard, you can tell me, I don't know. Or court people, is the flat good or is this good? I think that's bad. Mine would be flat, right? He sailed through the polygraph. Now, we don't always experience our confidence. We, we, our sense of assurance sometimes comes and goes. Different things affect our sense of assurance. But nothing can affect your right to assurance. And the Holy Spirit gives you a kind of assurance of your salvation that you can not boast in yourself about, but like, look at what Jesus did. Like, you can talk about philosophy and why you think there's no God and stuff, but, but I'm here to tell you, like, the reason I'm eating lunch with you right now and, going, and not playing with my kids is because I want you to have what I have. I know that I'm going to heaven, man. And it's not because of me. It's because of Jesus. Our hope is not in, this is what I did, or I did better at not doing that thing. It's in what Jesus said when he cried out, it is finished. Amen? Amen. Woo! Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for our salvation. 
Oh God, please open our eyes to reality more deeply, Lord. Help us to have the courage to dare to stretch our imaginations to fit what your word really says about how secure we are in Jesus and how loved we are even in the midst of things that make it feel like we aren't and make it look like we aren't to the world. Oh God, we pray that you would continue to open the eyes of our hearts by your spirit, continue to renew us, continue to do a work of revival in our hearts. And we pray that if anyone hasn't yet trusted in Jesus, that through the good news they've heard today, they would say, yes, Lord, I want that. I want you. I want your forgiveness. I need you. I have no hope apart from you, Jesus. I'm yours. Would you please make today the day of their salvation? We praise you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.